So how do we define success? The, the clip is from the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. A lot of you have seen it already. Uh, if you haven't, you ought to. And in, in the movie, obviously, this guy has fallen upon hard times. He's been kicked out of his home. He's homeless, but he's, he's left raising his boy. And you have to look at this situation and say, uh, th there would be this sense that he's failing. But here's my question, and I, I almost could ask this question and then just end the service and we'd have prayer and call it a day. Does this moment define his life? Is, is this moment that we see on the screen, is, is this uh, the whole picture of, I think his name was Chris Gardner, Chris Gardner's life? Or, or is there more to it than that? The, the idea being that you can't look at a person's situation or their circumstances right here, right now, and pretend to have the big picture view of the value of their life or the, the amount of meaning that they've found or the amount of success that they've found in life. We, we, we've, we talked a couple weeks ago about death anxiety and how death is coming to us all. And so we all have this latent uh, fear about death that we kind of keep, keep hidden. And, and because of that, we feel like we have to find meaning. We have to, we have to figure out what this life means. And so I've titled today's sermon, How Do You Success, Bro?, which I thought was much funnier than you guys apparently did. I, 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 I laughed out loud when I put this together, and I have a great sense of humor. <laughs> so this is the graphic that I shared with you a few weeks ago about this idea that, and, 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 and I, this is my art. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, it starts from birth, it ends in death, and, and then, you know, there's, because there's this, this approaching death, and we know that we have this scarcity of time, uh, we talked about food anxiety and how when there's, when there's a, a, a scarcity of food that develops anxiety and, and people who have had food anxiety will actually hoard food. When they're given a meal, a lot of times they'll hide some of that food away because they've learned that when there's scarcity, you hoard. And so we have this idea that there's a scarcity of life. It's a latent, buried, unconscious idea we all have that says, I've only got so much time. And so we think, I've got to get married by a certain date. Most of us think this. Most of us think, if I'm not married by the time I'm 40, then I'm, I'm nothing. I've, I've failed at life. And then we think, well, we've got to get married, and there probably ought to be some school. You know, education is probably good, and this is Western culture. You know, then we ought to get a job, and eventually we'll probably retire. Uh, you know, we, we probably want to do some charitable work. We want, to, we want to give back. And ultimately, what we want to do is we want to find meaning in this short time we have on planet Earth. And, and Jesus taught us, and, and what Jesus proved through his death and resurrection, this is what we talked about on Easter, is that this is what the actual timeline looks like. That there's birth, and then there's the X that is death, and then it just goes on and on and on. And the resurrection of Jesus showed that. It proved it definitively. If that event is true, then there is more than just this life. But we still have this, this latent anxiety. I saw this cartoon this week that talks about our lives and how we spend our days. It says, first, shop for a new tie, make some macaroni, do some cardio, don't let the existential dread set in, don't let it set in, vacuum the rug. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to this. We, 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 we just try not to think. But I think, it, I think it's, it's important that we think. I think it's important we think about meaning. After I talked about how Jesus shows that life goes on forever, somebody approached me out in the hall afterwards and said, so if that's the case, how do we find meaning in this life? I mean, what, what does it mean to have meaning? What is, what is our purpose? How do, how do we define success for us? I've been reading this book 
by Richard Peck called the uh, Richard Beck called the slavery of death. And and again, it's it's on this topic. But I've kind of compiled some of his ways that he talks about that are probably either illegitimate or unfortunate ways that we approach this topic. There's ways that we try to find meaning in our lives that probably aren't the best ways. And so I want to touch on three of those real quick. And the first one is allegiance to the machine. Now this, this sounds like a 70s you know, hippie thing where, man, don't just stick it to the man, don't give it to the man. And in a sense, there's some truth to that. Because what he talks about is because we all know we're going to die, we want to, find, we want to outlive our death. And so we try to find something we can tie our lives to that we know will outlive us. And in doing so, we beat death. In doing so, so we want to live on. We, I, you know, I just, I just buried a, a precious uncle this week. And at the funeral, a wonderful guy. And so many people stood up and said wonderful things about him. And he touched so many lives. But then I have to think, in four generations, will anyone remember the name of P.J. Grumley? Even though he was the president of every organization in Paducah, Kentucky for years, he sat on their city council, in four generations, will he be remembered at all? And I have to think about myself that way. Will I be remembered? And all of us, in a sense, think that sort of thing. We think, you know, how can I live on? How can I make my mark? And so we give ourselves to something bigger than us, something that will outlast us. So it might be a work situation. You could give yourself to the Coca-Cola company. You can give 30 years, 40 years of work to Coca-Cola to try to make their company great. Or you could give it to politics and to your government. Or you could even give it to your church, thinking your church is going to last a lot longer than you. And your family would be one sense of, of, of something that you invest yourself in with this idea that I will outlive myself if I do that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in your job. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in your family. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm not saying don't invest in the church. But I'm saying there's this sense that if we will give ourselves up to something bigger than us, that we can outlive death. And in some sense, there, that, that can become an idol in our lives. There, there's, there's, we, we live, in, in, in some sense, it's like Pink Floyd says, all in all, it's just another brick in the wall. There can be this sense that if I will give myself some, to something larger than me, then I will have achieved something great in my life. And, and, and in a way, what it does is it puts a wall up between us and what actual reality is. What is really, truly important. And I'm not, when we, when we look back at this picture of what Jesus established, this kingdom that will last forever, I'm, I'm of the opinion that that's what's important. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And so you can invest in Coca-Cola in a, in a sense that it will invest in everlasting life. You can certainly invest in your church, certainly invest in your family. But if you think that your whole life finds its meaning in these things, because here's the reality of it, the family, the church, Coca-Cola, the government, they also will all die. All you're doing is prolonging it. That's not where we find existential meaning. It's not where we find ultimate grounded reality. We live in a culture that makes idols of heroism. So we have this sense that I need to make something of my life in order for my life to have meaning. And sometimes we think, and it ties into the next point, which is the deification of excellence. We think, I want to be the fastest person, 
or I want to be the richest person, or I want to be the most well-spoken person, or I want to be the best, most generous family person there ever was. And it, we, we, we have this idea that if I can just make something great of myself, then I will have achieved meaning. And it makes excellence the idol. And I know in Western culture, man, you challenge excellence. It's like, I mean, this is a sacred cow in our culture. To say that it's okay not to be excellent is like blasphemy in our culture. But the reality is you cannot achieve the degree of excellence that Western culture demands of you. Because Western culture tells you that you must be the best family person you can be and also tells you that you must be the best employee you can be. It tells you that you need to be as active in, in, in the community as, as you can possibly be, helping and serving others, as active in the church, as generous with your money as you can possibly be. Excellence, excellence, excellence. And the reality is, the more excellent you become at your job place, at your workplace, the less excellent you can become with your family, and vice versa. If you're going to invest wholly and fully, wholeheartedly in your family, it means your work will suffer. In a sense, in some ways, it might mean that your church will suffer. It might mean that you can't be as generous with your money as you would like to be. All of these things are, in a sense, mutually exclusive. You can't achieve excellence in every area. So the author of the book talks about that it's okay, and here's where you can just breathe. Just everybody breathe with me. In, in through the mouth, out through the nose. No, in through the nose, out through the mouth. It's always uh, Out through the nose can get really bad, especially with a mic on. All right, in through the nose, out, with, out through the mouth. Here's where you can breathe. It's okay to be good enough. You don't have to be the greatest at everything, even though our culture tells you you have to be. Even though our culture tells you you always have to be aspiring for something more, that's simply not the reality, and you can't attain that standard. And when you shoot for that standard, who are you trying to be? You're trying to be God. It's the deification of excellence. When you're trying to be the greatest, the best, the most excellent at everything, it's a hopeless cause. So there has to be this time in your life when you realize, you know, it's, it's okay to be good enough. It doesn't mean you don't strive for excellence. It doesn't mean you don't try to, to if you're going to create a church, you don't try to put the best music out that you can. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about you don't suffer existentially if you can't meet all the demands that your culture puts on you. This is a famous, very famous painting called uh, The Night Watch by Rembrandt. Now, if we could go to the Night Watch by Rembrandt, go to the painting, and say, okay, painting, find meaning, achieve your purpose, would the painting have to do anything? Does, does the painting need to change in order to establish its meaning and purpose? Or is just the reality, the fact that it is a painting, good enough? What do you think? Isn't the purpose of the painting being a painting? I mean, that's what it is. It, the purpose of the painting mostly is just to reflect the artistry of the artist, right? And not just that, but it's, the purpose of the painting is to pull emotions out of us and to make us feel something. But the painting does all of this without effort. It can't think. It can't act. It's just an inanimate object. All it does is sit there, and yet it achieves great purpose and great meaning. 
So let's look at this little boy. And we look at this boy and we say, go find meaning in life. Can't we at least a little bit say, nailed it? Can't we already look at him and because he breathes in through the nose and out through the mouth and because he operates his thumbs and because he can eat food and digest food and because he can carry on a conversation and because he is human, hasn't he already in some sense achieved some level of really amazing purpose? He's a piece of art. He is a work of art that is without effort without doing anything else in his life, just in being, reflects this amazing artist. Scripture teaches us that we were created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. You are a colossal, phenomenal, magnanimous, unbelievable work of art. Right here, right now. Whether your circumstances look like Chris Gardner sitting in a nasty, dirty bathroom doing his best to raise his boy, or whether you're king of the world, traveling the world, you got more money than you know what to do with, doesn't matter. Whether you've achieved your existential education that you want that makes you feel valuable, whether you've learned multiple languages, traveled the world, whatever it is, with or without all those things, you are amazing. You are filled with something beautiful. Right here, right now, nothing else needs to be done. It's okay to be just good enough. It's okay to be a reflection of God and that be it. Now, of course, that doesn't lead us to action. It doesn't lead us to, well, what do I do? What, do I, how, how, you know, what, what should I make of my circumstances? What, what, should I, what communication should I have? What house should I buy? It, does, it doesn't lead us to all those answers, but just rest knowing you are a work of art, and that's a huge part of what you were designed to be, and that's all you were designed to be, is a work of art reflecting this tremendous artist. The Westminster Catechism says the chief duty of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So not only are you a work of art, you're a work of art that is, um, has volition. You have thought, you have the ability to think and to enjoy and to glorify you're not just a painting. You're not just an inanimate object. So what does that look like? C.S. Lewis talks about that, that particular demand of the Westminster Catechism. He says, praise not merely expresses, but completes. Enjoyment, it is its appointed consummation. Uh, and, well, and he goes on to say, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The, light, the, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So if I'm in love... It's one thing to be in love and to feel those feelings and, and to wake up every morning thinking about the object of my affection. It's another thing to say it, to say I love you, to tell people, Lacey, I met this great girl and I love her and she's so beautiful and wonderful and, and Lacey thinks I'm sappy and an idiot, but I feel good. I, I am glorifying the object of my affection, the object of my enjoyment. And, and it's circular. When I glorify, I enjoy. When I enjoy... I glorify. And he goes on to say, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. If you guys have Bibles with you or you have uh, electronic devices where you can pull it up, all you have to do is type in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. So we're going to 2 Corinthians 3. 
Uh, you can do that on your phone, you can do it on your iPads, or you can pull out your Bible. Which reminds me, I bought uh, 30 of these Compass Study Bibles this week for really dirt cheap. So if you don't have a good study Bible, come, with, come see me afterwards. Tell me you want one. I've got 28 of them left in my truck. I will give you a good study Bible if you don't have one. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm sorry, yeah, ch- chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, Are we back to page 1? Do we need to gather some recommendations to prove our validity to you? So he's been kind of challenged and on, on, on his ministry and work. And he's saying, do I need to write another letter of recommendation? Do I, need, do I really need to qualify myself again? He says, or do we need to take your letter of commendation to others to gain credibility? Then in verse 2, now I'm reading from the voice version, so it's, it's, it's a, a dynamic language version. It's probably a little different than what you've got in front of you. It says, you are our letter. Every word burned into our hearts to be read by everyone. You are the living letter of the anointed one, the liberating king, nurtured by us and inscribed, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. A letter too passionate to be chiseled into stone tablets, but emblazoned upon the human heart. Now, whatever version you're reading, it will read something something comparable to that. But it's this idea that they're looking to him for credibility. He's saying, you are my credibility. This amazing miracle that's happened in your life is what it shows that our ministry is valid. But he says, you are a letter. So he's writing to the Christians. He said, hey, Christians, you are a letter to the world. You are meant to be the art that hangs on the wall of the world that all the world can come and look at and see the artist. That's your meaning. That's your purpose. That's what you were designed to be. Your intrinsic existential value is found in that, that the artist looks good through you. And then he closes up this chapter. I, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter later on your own time. He closes up the chapter by saying, By the Lord, what I mean is the Spirit, and in any heart where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is liberty. Now all of us, with our faces unveiled, reflect the glory of the Lord as if we are mirrors, and so we're being transformed into His same image, from one radiance of glory to another. So we aren't just pieces of art that hang on a wall and remain static. You, you are a piece of art, you, like a mirror that is supposed to reflect the image and the glory of God. When people look at you, what you were designed to be, where you find meaning and where you find purpose, is in reflecting God to others. Being an image people can look look at and say, that's, that's what God looks like. Ultimately, so there's this sense that says, okay, just being good enough is good enough. Just breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, man, you are magical. You are wonderful. You're incredible. It doesn't get any better than that. But in the same sense, or in a different sense, there's this idea that that person is supposed to be transformed to reflect God. And, and so then we have to ask, what does God look like? And, and what does God look like in us? And the answer is, is a cross. When you, when you look at Jesus and you look at the work he did, Jesus emptied himself of being God, of all the privileges of being God, and lowered himself. Philippians 2 says that he made himself a servant, made himself a slave. 
And so if, if we're going to reflect the image of God, what, what does that mean for how we act, how we look, how we walk through our days? And I, I want to teach you a, a concept about the impossible possibility. And if you look into Buddhism, Buddhism's, uh, I'm sorry, Buddhists believe that they can uh, hopefully achieve nirvana one day. And nirvana would be a state of perfection or a, a, a state of wonderment. Um, and they, they do this by emptying themselves. So the idea is if you can become nothing, then you can become everything. And it, it does seem a little uh, self-defeating. You know, how can I selfishly pursue being unselfish? To me, to me the, the, the Buddhist ideal of achieving nirvana is actually unaccessible. I, really, I, I believe that. I, I believe it's unattainable. So it's not an, impossibil, an impossible possibility. It's just plain impossible. But see, Christian, Christianity asks something of us that is really similar. It says that we would die to ourselves, that we would no longer live for ourselves. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are made new. It's like being, it, it, it's, it's total death to self, risen Christ in us. That is impossible. We can't do that. And even when we look at the idolatry of heroism, you know, even, so let, let's say I look at the idolatry of heroism and I say, okay, I don't want to be like that. I don't, I don't want to make heroism and my excellence my idol, so I will do my best not to do that. But you see, even in doing my best not to do that, now I'm just looking at heroism from a different angle. I'm still trying to be right. I'm still trying to be heroic. I'm still trying to give my life value by not being, by, by idolizing heroism. And it, it just can blow the mind. And you just, you know, and when we think about being good or being right or being loving, how do I love people without some ulterior selfish motive? Have I ever in my entire life, even once, done one unadulterated act of love that wasn't about me? Most of us, when we give, we we don't give legitimately, sacrificially. We give to a level that it doesn't inconvenience us just enough because we idolize heroism. Because we want to be good and right and lovely. Not out of some altruistic, self-sacrificing nature. So Christianity asks us something impossible. It asks us something we can't possibly do on our own. So what is the answer? And I believe the answer is a miracle. I think we have to have a miracle. And here's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism. In Buddhism, I'm left to my own devices to achieve nirvana. In Christianity, God says, I'll do that. In Christianity, Jesus says, I will do something in your life that you can't do if you'll let me. If you'll just say yes, I'll come in. And that's the difference. So it's not impossible. Now you have the God of the universe on your side making the impossible Possible. These are lyrics from, from um, U2's latest album that ended up on all your devices, whether you wanted it to or not. The first song, I think, is called The Miracle. It says, I woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred, heard a song that made some sense out of the world. Everything I'd ever lost now has been returned in the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. Scripture teaches us how do, you, how do you accomplish this miracle of existential joy and service to others. It says we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. 
Colossians teaches us God's message fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm going to teach you a Greek word, and then we're going to shut things down. It's the Greek word kenosis. And the Greek word kenosis is from a root word that means to empty. And it's, if you look up kenosis in the dictionary, just you know, ask Siri, Siri, what is kenosis? She's going to tell you that it's rooted in Christian theology, and it's this idea of emptying oneself to be filled. And we see, we see kenosis acted out in the life of Jesus. That Jesus, being in very nature, like Philippians 2 says, in very nature God made himself nothing. And I, I, I have to think about our lives and, 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 and hope and pray and ask about myself even, that even once this week, I would, I would do that. That somehow, some way, even once a miracle would occur and I would be able to love without expectation, without trying to make myself look good, without trying to achieve some meaning or purpose in my life, but love that is pure, love that is honorable in front of God. And Scripture teaches that's a miracle God does in us. And so my encouragement to you, you say, what is meaning? What is purpose? How do I achieve meaning in this life? You have to have a miracle. To, to, you've already had a miracle and you can breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Now to maximize that miracle, you need more miracles. That's what you need. You don't have enough willpower to do it. You don't have enough strength to get it done. You can't do it. But Jesus says, I will do it in you if you'll let me.